You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the B&H app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Weitz. Greetings and welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. Chelsea Kyle is a food photographer and former staff photographer at Condé Nast, where her work would regularly appear in Bon Appetit, Epicurious magazines, and websites. As of late, she's working through Hello Artist Agency, and you can see her work featured in Pop Sugar and Time Out magazine. Drew Eichley took a path through social work to working in restaurants and as a pastry cook before jumping into food styling full-time, first as an assistant in Seattle and L.A., and then on his own in New York. His clients include Food 52, Bon Appetit, Grady's Coffee, Hello Fresh, La Croix, Panera, and Carnival Cruises. Now, here's the whammy line, folks. They're a couple. In real life, Chelsea and Drew are engaged to be married, but whether working together with other colleagues, it takes the talent and hard work of both a food stylist and photographer to make food photography come to life. Today, we're going to talk about both of their professions and, of course, how they collaborate and complement each other. Welcome, Chelsea. Welcome, Drew. Hi. Thank you. Hi. Thanks. So good to be here. So even though they're a couple, they were, they're separated by different rooms. We're not going to get into why, but that, that's the <laughs> anyway. Um, <laughs> anyway, other than camera and lens for Chelsea, what's your most important tool as a food photographer? Oh, this is such a tough one. Um, I have quite a few that I like, but I'd have to say that my favorite would be Capture One, which is a digital tool, um, but is absolutely crucial to my work, especially with stylists working in tandem on set, it allows us to both be following along and uh, tethering the camera. It's, it's very important, but if I had to choose a second, I would probably say a Cardellini, especially as of late while we're shooting at home with minimal, just the two of us. I was about to say minimal crew, but it's, <laughs> it's literally no crew. It's just us. And uh, that's Cardellini has just been like, an extra hand where you need it and no, holding everything. Could, could you, you explain that? that is? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I had that about two weeks ago. We went out to this restaurant. It was really lovely. I don't, I, I couldn't find it online there, but what is that? <laughs> I hope I'm pronouncing it right. It's the, <laughs> uh, it's more advanced than an A clamp because of its ability to like ah. expand the jaw of its, okay. it attaches to your, traditional c-stand or any working light stand it's it's a grip tool that makes your life very easy is what you're trying to say (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) what do you clamp with it pretty much anything okay there i would say the most uh primary use that i've had it for in the past is is rigging up a surface so it allows you to clamp down onto a surface and hold it upright or at an angle um, it, it's very versatile in how it allows you to prop up sets, but it also u- is useful for, for example, if we have to have a glass being held into frame in a certain way, you can, you can actually clamp it to, you can clamp a glass in there. You can put a fork in there. You can put a plate. Um, it's, it's pretty versatile. And Drew, same question to you. What, what, what is your, you know, key tools that you're using on set? Um, you know, it's, it's different for every job, but I would say my, my favorites are a 
mini offset spatula. So uh, it kind of looks like a about the size of a paring knife, but is used traditionally in restaurants with pastry, but uh, for like smoothing out cakes or uh, lifting things. But it, it can come in handy with moving things on set and. Um, if you're frying something or cooking something, it, it helps with flipping. Uh, but also, I really love OXO squeezy pours. They're uh, silicone liquid measuring cups that come in handy in a lot of different ways. Not trying to do an ad for OXO or anything, but I do love their product. Um, and I think last is, which it kind of is crazy to me that not more people use this, but uh, plastic bench scrapes. Uh, uh, they're helpful with like cleaning up sets or cleaning up cutting boards, lifting a bunch of stuff into a pan, random things like that. Right. And are you, I assume that when you're on set, you're constantly readjusting and, and, you know, touching or not touching is the right word, but, uh, you know, redesigning what you're, what's about to be photographed. Is it, or do you finish it and that's that? No, it, it's definitely what you said first, redesigning, mm-hmm. touching, sometimes replating or even remaking the food if it's mm-hmm. just not reading in the right way for what we need it for. There, What I was envisioning is different from what the client was asking. Yeah, it's always mm-hmm. playing with the food. And do you, I mean, are you cooking most of the food or how does that work? That's something I was really curious about. Like, What's the relationship that you have with, and we're not talking about now when it's just that, you know, you guys are in your own place and in quarantine, but in general, do you work with regular chefs or, or how's that work? Yeah, no, it's a, a good question. Um, no, we are sourcing, buying, um, following recipes, making everything for set for mm-hmm. the photo shoots. Um, the industry has definitely changed and was different before I got involved with it, where a lot in, in the years ago, food styling was more so using fake food and setting that up because it had to sit for a lot longer with before digital. But now with digital, you know, we're making, um, I'm making everything that you see on set, everything that we've done together. Um, mm-hmm or on you know any normal set um it'll be the food stylist and an assistant or two that are preparing and making everything well so you are a chef as well basically yeah 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 Yeah. to add to that i think it's a big misconception that a lot of people don't know that food stylists primarily are not only responsible for making the recipes perfectly but then also having the foresight to make adjustments for visual purposes. So there's a lot of times where having, you know, to undercook something makes it look better, having, you know, a different ingredient that might add to like the the visual aesthetic of the image, but not in any way like make the recipe not (laughs) yeah, well, taste is another thing. I mean, sometimes you just leave ingredients out if it doesn't actually look it doesn't need to be there for the visual purposes. Um, but yeah. And also I have to give Drew more credit. He just said, we, I do not cook anything for set stuff. I will be like helping here and there maybe, but my role in that is more of, you know, of a director role where I'm kind of directing the visual look of the food, but, uh, I very rarely am involved in, in the food side of things. 
think going off of that too is and off of the previous question, half of my job on average, I would say, is sourcing and grocery shopping. And a lot of that is contacting, um, if needed, farms throughout the U.S. and sourcing things from them that may not be in season in New York, but are needed. And from going around to grocery stores in New York and knowing who has what generally and making sure that for each shot, each type of produce and type of um, need is being met for that recipe, which I I think that that also sets apart food stylists from maybe different areas where, you know, if, if I'm cooking for the two of us for dinner and we're not shooting it, I'm not going to be as concerned about getting everything perfectly. And I'm going to be making substitutions if we don't have something or if I don't want to, you know, run to a store for one ingredient specifically, but that, you know, when it's food styling, I'm running to six different stores for one ingredient each, because that's what the recipe needs. And that's what the photo needs to, to look appropriate and to look its best. And Drew, how many folks that, you know, colleagues of yours and food stylists come out of the restaurant world or, you know, or come out of the photography world as opposed? Yeah. Um, I, it's interesting. I would say half and half. There are definitely food stylists who have gone to photo school, um, or art school first. There are also, you know, the other half that went to culinary school and definitely like a Venn diagram where there's a middle ground too, where there are some people who went to culinary school and to photo school. So I want to jump back a bit to talk about maybe a typical job and uh, you know, who, who would be hired first, uh, the stylist and and what comes to you already? You know, is the editor saying to you, okay, this is the, the, the recipe we're going to use, or this is what we want to show. Uh, Take it from there. uh, Or, Talk a little bit about the process and then also maybe Chelsea, you can chime in as to when the photographer steps in. From what I've heard, they and my experience is that clients will often find a photographer and ask what stylist the photographer works with or will ask for a list of stylists that they can from the photographer that they can go over and, and maybe choose a couple to pursue for the job. As a photographer, then Chelsea, you have to kind of be aware of the different stylists that are out there working and what their specialty is, whether it's going to be something sweet or beverage or, you know, or a Thanksgiving meal. And then you kind of give them a call or ask your agency to give them a call. Yeah, I would say that, you know, it it is a majority of stylists that know that, that all encompassing knowledge that they can do just about everything. I do there are stylists who have areas of styling that they're better at. And I think that there are times that that is the reason why I may not have chosen a food stylist, because if a food publication is doing a a whole thing on cakes and there are all these very elaborate cakes, there's going to be a food stylist out there that has a stronger skill set when it comes to baked goods and assembly of cakes and, and like piping and frosting and things like that, that um, a general knowledge is expected for most uh, food stylists and, and 
more than just general. They need to be good at it, but then there are people who are, you know, a step further than that. And, and those people are called on by editors. They're called on by us. I, I definitely, I know a lot about the various stylists in New York and can tell you, you know, that this person's better at doing that, especially with my job when I was full-time at Kanye Austin, I was a photo editor, photographer, and the producer of most of these shoots. So I was sourcing props and food stylists based on that, but also based on like, if it was just general recipes availability and their ability to work with me personally, uh, that's really important. And especially, you know, it was, it was fast paced work. It, it, you, you get to know who, who can handle certain things better. And it, it kind of just becomes a decision based on that. Hmm. And, but you're at that point, you're more or less the boss, if you want to use that phrase, or do you guys become partners and, and make the decisions 50, 50, or is is your name that's going to be on the, the final product? I don't want to say that I'm the boss for well, sure, you know, but I mean, it definitely, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it definitely, if, if you're on set and the decision comes down to a visual aesthetic choice, it is the photographer that gets the last call or the, the director, the, the client. Yeah, I, I agree with that ultimately as well. Um, the photographer is, I wouldn't say boss, but they are probably higher up on the food chain and um, have more you know, direction. If, if something isn't looking well, they'll, they'll be times when the photographer is like, oh, can this be remade or, or can we move things like that that may not um, be seen? But, you know, it is, it is a lot of collaboration between photographer, food stylist, prop stylist. And I think in a, a perfect job, you know, everyone is complimenting each other instead of having a hierarchy of the, right. you know, what the photographer says. Is, right. And I imagine it's different on every set with every personality for yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Other than the food itself, are you kind of responsible for, you know, the, the props and, and the, the setting itself? Uh, uh, the colors that are chosen, or is that something that usually comes either through the client or, or through the photographer? In a pre-quarantine world, the decisions like that are coming from the client to the prop stylist. So, for example, if a client is saying they want um, a specific color for a uh, a dish, the that then becomes a conversation between client, maybe recipe developer or the recipe and food stylist and prop stylist of, you know, what I would chime in there is saying a normal spaghetti dish would be served on this, or it would be on a platter like this if we wanted it to be on a platter. And then a prop stylist would bring different, serving dishes and plates depending on how it was going to be shot if it was one more heroic full family style serving or if it was individual plated versions and not not every job is wanting it to be you know in the most the food to be in the most traditional served sense but the props are determined more so by client and, and prop stylist and food stylist. And how many people would be, and again, of course, this is all pre, pre-quarantine and let's say a, a standard shoot or a medium-sized shoot, how many people are going to be on set? Um, I think on a smaller job, there is a 
prop stylist and assistant, a food stylist and assistant, a photographer and assistant, and then um, a couple of clients and maybe the uh, recipe writer or recipe tester developer on set. I, I think the you know, the smallest jobs have, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chelsea, but you know, five, six, eight people on the small side. Yeah, I definitely think the 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 number of crew within those lead roles increases based on the concepts, the shot list, how involved it is uh, with the with everything that you have on set. Because there are times where we're on multiple day shoots and an assistant, an additional assistant, is needed for one of those people because they're physically going out and getting. You know, food stylist needs new ingredients that are re- were recently added or or like you had to revise something in real time and they need to be like doing that. But it's those roles and that's pretty typical. That's even more so with, for example, a cookbook um, when you can't have a couple prep days at the start of a job when a cookbook is anywhere from three days to six weeks of shooting where you're going to have to have prep days mixed in between there and have assistants running out and, and prepping different ingredients so that everything is staying fresh. Will you uh, create, meaning will you cook something a few days in advance and is it kind of standard to do a few test runs on something before it's ready to shoot? Yeah, with, with some recipes, definitely. If you know, Part of my job and one of the biggest things I like about it is I'm always trying to cook recipes that I've never made before if it's just for dinner or just testing them out so that if a job were to ever come up about some type of food, I would have some knowledge of how it's made. If a job came up and I I didn't know what it was, there's generally time to prep it in advance and to make a test run or two. so yeah, it's that's definitely part of the job is familiarizing yourself with that. And as for the other part of that question, depending on the recipe, you know, it's, it's up to the food styles. It's up to me if I think that I can make something the day before and it will be okay to be shot the next day. For example, they're like a soup or a chili. Those are good examples of things that can be made the day before and they'll look similar the following day and we'll save a lot of time if it's a you know, something that a soup that cooks for four hours or a roast you can cook it for a majority of the time the day before and then finish it off the next day as well i have a question that's kind of time related and that has to do with the fact that i'm going through your portfolios online your websites there's a lot of motion that's been introduced in, in both of your sites uh, with things moving around, uh, not quite video, but little things moving around, almost animation-like. Um, is that something you did on your own or is it something that was done by assignment and is it something you want to do more of? Because some of the stuff's kind of fun. Yeah, I would say it's a little, it's a mix of both. I have a ton of work myself like that because I am very interested in uh, motion within food and kind of adding that that another another element to the image that that keeps you 
engaged and is a little bit more dynamic than just like a, a sitting glass by itself. Um, that is definitely something that I have used in the past as a way to kind of put my personal touch on an image that otherwise would just be a, a basic recipe photo. I've also been asked from clients to do that specific look. I think that there's a lot of like cocktail companies that really uh, enjoy having, you know, dynamic images like that of, of, of different cocktails of drinks, things that move. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely a little bit of both. Are you doing stop action uh, uh, or, or how are you, how are you moving all the stuff around? Is it done in computer and camera? It's in camera. Um, yeah, it's all, well, not in camera as in like, it's not, the camera is not putting, stitching it together for me. Um, I am doing stop motion. Okay. And then a, a, like compiling those images in post uh, through a variety of different softwares, depending on the specific type of image and the speed and all of that. But um, yeah, that is all stills. I have a specific question about ice. I just looking at your website also, how, how hard is it to <laughs> one keep ice, <laughs> you know, the way you wanted to look drew and, and then the photograph it the way you like Chelsea. Yeah. That's, that's a really big concern with any job that is having ice and is something that I've talked with other food stylists about and um, how it's, it's always a stressful job when a lot of ice needs to be sourced. There are, it depends a lot on the budget, really, because you can spend a lot of money on perfectly um, cubed, clear ice blocks bought from different places in New York. And you can spend a lot of money on fake ice that's sold at prop shops in New York. Um, there's also a lot of really cheap ice. And Chelsea and I will always point it out when we see an advertisement and we can tell that it's fake ice being used because it's it's part of our world but um there's everything in between you know the cheapest you can buy on amazon and some shots you can tell sometimes you can't but um there's a lot of variety and how much time is there where you know i mean when a food is something's just out of the oven or a drink is just made is there that kind of window of time yeah yeah it's small it depends on the specific recipe you know in and what it, like Drew just said, if it is a fake ice or if it is real, I mean, the ideal ice is the real fancy ice. We just call it fancy ice in the industry, but it's the <laughs> stuff that you buy from the stores that are the manufacturers that, that I think what they're doing is, is getting the water to a boiling point so that when it freezes, it's perfectly clear. And they have molds that, you know, you can't find a specific mold that makes that perfect one inch square. And, um, of course, because it's New York city, you can find that. Um, and it is not cheap, but that is ideal. And it, it's, it's very, we use stand-ins a lot, especially with drinks. And like you said, the stuff coming out of the oven, if, if there's a small window, like for example, a souffle has mere seconds, if you're lucky that it's going to stay, puffed up before it starts to deflate and, and not be beautiful. So the lighting is perfect. We've already, you know, uh, put the, the specific dish that was being used or at least something its size on set. And then you use little markers that are like these little 
set cubes that, you know, essentially the food stylist can know exactly where to put the plate back when they're running from the oven. So that everything is in place and ready to go as it's hot and looks the best. And is there a lot of kind of hurry up and wait type of thing for the photographer? You mean you get everything set up, the lights are ready, and then you just wait for the food to be ready? Absolutely. My set entirely revolves around the food. So my, I might be, if I'm not prepared for when that dish is ready, then it's chaos. So Mm. my entire set is revolving around efficiently managing time with the food stylist so that we're, you know, and yeah, it does sometimes allow for a lot of sitting around and waiting for the food to be ready. And and you can't really do anything in between those those moments because you have to have everything set up perfectly and ready to go. So it definitely it happens. One little question I have. Uh, um, you guys mentioned that you could tell the difference between real ice and fake ice. What about fake steam? Can you usually pick up steam that was added after the fact? Ooh, that's, think- a, that's a good question. I don't, you know, there, there are a couple different ways that I know of, of capturing fake steam or adding it in and I'm not as familiar with how to add it in and post, but I would say generally, no. I I think I can see it mostly when it's been Photoshopped, but if it's like a steamer instead of like the actual food is hot. Yeah. No, it's heading into the shot itself. Somebody from behind came up with a little steamer or something. If if you could usually tell that apart. I think there's definitely like a, a type of steam that you're looking for when you're on set creating it in real life and like, you know, there's a million different steamers and the, the way they like let out steam can definitely be different. I think that's more of a prop stylist thing. Yeah. I, I can imagine your people that stay up at night thinking about that, the qualities of steam coming out of these steamers. And that's, what's kind of scary. I think. It's kind of funny. Actually, there's a trick. Uh, this is a food stylist trick that I've seen happen a couple times now, actually, where if you get, if you heat up a hot, and this is gross, uh, not gross, actually, I shouldn't say that because women's products are not gross. Um, if you heat up a tampon that's wet, it will steam better than most things. I got to keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> keep it in your back food. pocket. <laughs> <laughs> and food stylists generally in their kits will have uh, backup tampons too, just in case, just okay. to... Yeah, as think, a useful bit of knowledge. Yeah, no, I want, there's a few <laughs> questions like that I want to ask. Maybe we'll wait for the second half of the show. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you, were, you were saying earlier that you, you know, you're tethered when you're shooting. So you know, in addition to the client and, and the stylist and, and everybody, I guess, is on set is taking a look at what you shoot. But after, you know, after you've done a shot or two or, you, you know, you feel you're satisfied, Chelsea, everyone does take a look and... Um, Drew, what what might you say, for example, in a moment like that? What are you looking at? Yeah, um, there's a a lot to be looking at. I would say generally I'm looking at how the light is affecting the food. If there are any, on a sandwich, for example, if there's any kind of super dark spots that the food either needs to be pushed up or something needs to be added to that spot on the sandwich so it doesn't look as empty, I'm looking at making sure all the food is fresh, especially if there are herbs or greens, if part of the food isn't um, 
is starting to brown in a certain spot or if it has sat on set too long and has started to wilt if an herb needs to be replaced or if just overall if the food has sat out too long and it the whole dish needs to be replated um, i'm monitoring how quickly the food dies and um, how it changes after it sits out especially under lights right right and and chelsea i guess kind of same question to you what's your primary concerns when you're looking at something after you shot it or before in your case yeah i i would agree with drew it's definitely a combination of looking at the foods uh the lighting i think some of the best food stylists that i've worked with understand light in in the same way that they are generally plating knowing what direction the light is is going to be hitting certain things because of course if you have like a cascading array of something like for example if you think of like a, a chicken patty cut up and then you fan it out if it's facing a way that the lighter white inside of it is too bright it looks really jarring and weird and so there are things that like you kind of work in tandem with knowing that but I definitely look to my food stylist a lot to notify me when things are not up to their liking for how specific food is supposed to be presented is is arranged and things like that because I'm of course I'm making aesthetic decisions based on composition where the eye is entering the frame why is this getting lit that way or like is this glass a shadow affecting that corner like there are things that I'm focused on visually that sometimes I'll miss an important food aspect that needs to be present for you know illustrative purposes of the recipe or or whatnot so it really is it's it's a team effort and it's a lot of collaboration Okay, we're going to take a short break and we come back. We're going to talk more about food photography, food styling, uh, doing Zoom presentations of food photography, uh, and all kinds of other exciting things with Drew and Chelsea. Stay tuned. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. The best way to support the show is by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For links to gear and more information on today's guests, check out the show notes in your podcast app or visit our homepage on the B&H Explorer website and join the B&H Photography Podcast Facebook group. And now, back to the show. Okay, we are back. Uh, question I want to start. We're going to talk about uh, uh, gear and technique here and little tricks of the trade. Something I've been curious about. I know I know that for the longest time, food photography or studio photography in general was with two different camps. There was uh, flash, electronic flash, and there were hot lights, usually tungsten, and they were called hot lights for a reason. And if you were shooting food, you had to work real fast. Now we have LEDs, which kind of are hybrid. You can't freeze action like you do with, with strobe. But you have continuous daylight that's not hot, which gives you a little more leeway with things like ice cream and other cold products uh, and other things that heat would make them look weird in a matter of time. Uh, are you using LED lights more in your work? Uh, are there particular problems with LEDs? What's the story of lighting and food photography these days? So I'm primarily using strobes. Uh, I... I definitely think that the 
the studio that you're in and the amount of equipment needed, it, it varies. But for me personally, I am always using strobes. I am very much a control freak in that sense where I don't like to rely on natural light because of the fact that it is food photography. So we are moving quickly and there are things that uh, have small windows of time in which they're presentable and look their best. And I want to be 100% prepared for that moment. So I primarily use strobes so that I'm in control of that. I do think there is still an aspect of the modeling light features that has affected food in the past where I'm having to turn that off. Um, if things are, are quickly melting, I know there are studios that are designed so that they are cold and they have, you know, crazy air conditioning so that the set can go on with, with, with ice cream and things like that. And they're just basically working in a giant refrigerator all day. Um, but yeah, I, I don't use too much continuous light. I have played around with it for gift purposes and kind of what we were talking about before with these, these stop motion images where if I need to get more frames per second and my strobes can't quite keep up, I'll use a combination of continuous, but I mean, even still now the, the latest technology with the pro photos and all that, like I can, I can easily be shooting raws with the five DS and have strobes and be firing, you know, 10 frames a second. It's, it's pretty wild. So, um, I'm, I'm very rarely using continuous light. Hmm. Okay. And you mentioned that it's the 5DS, so you're using the Canon system. And, and what, what are your lens choices generally? And, and how often do they change based on the job? Or do you kind of stick with what you like? I typically use an 85 uh, millimeter. That's my number one go-to. I use the 100 macro a lot because of different food stuff. Um, obviously, that that lends itself to having to do a lot of focus stacking sometimes because the images really dictate which, which system you're using. I think that the biggest reason that I choose these prime lenses is because when we do use a 24 to 70, especially for shooting top down. So you're overhead and, and I have, I'm on a phobus stand that might be six, seven feet high. And even then sometimes because of the set, like, you can't physically get far enough away. So that that's the only time that I would start to use a more wider angle. Um, but of course, when you're looking at a plate or something overhead glassware, it starts to distort quickly with the wider angle lenses. So do you ever use tilt shift lenses for your food photography? Cause you're talking about distortions and when you do it in close, especially with wider angle, these things happen and they can be controlled. Do, do you ever use them? Yeah, I have um, experimented around with them. I, I really love the Canon uh, tilt shift lenses. They're they're great. They still like, even though we're we're in digital and we have so much more like I guess time. I still find that with the speed of how things are going on set, I don't have as much time to play around with tilt shifts. Interesting. Okay, so it's actually more efficient for you to do all of these little correction stuff post than in the yes. camera. Okay. And you mentioned this idea of having the food look like food, you know, not being distorted. Um, is that absolutely crucial in the work or is there kind of wiggle room for, for having fun and, and, and stretching things out and, and making things look a little bit goofy? I think it depends on the client, uh, and the project for sure. I mean, I know that's kind of the boring answer, but it really, 
if you're shooting for a food publication that is showing recipes, they don't want this to look far out and crazy in the sense that like you wouldn't want to eat it and make that food. So the primary goal of that image is to make it look delicious and make sure that the the viewer wants to run home and buy all those ingredients. And, and that that's my job is to make sure that the food looks the best it can obviously Drew's job too, but like the, the image's purpose is that. So there isn't as much room for the, the creative let's do this wacky thing and try this. But I do a lot of that in my outtakes for me personally, like for the example the other day we were just shooting here it was a takeout story and Drew uses uh, those sheet pans for like cookie sheet pans as like his prep trays. So he's like bringing things from the kitchen to set using those a lot. And then he has his tools all on it. And sometimes it just gets, it turns into this really like playful mess. And I, I'm always photographing food styles prep trays because they're so interesting and it's, it's fun. You know, you can, you throw a glass on there of champagne and, and it becomes this weird image that makes no sense, but is visually fun. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we're, we're living in interesting times right now, and the quarantine has is, is affected everybody. How has it affected your workflow and your your business? And how have you adapted to this? Yeah, well, it's been interesting. Um, we are very fortunate because of the fact that we are a couple, and we are two of the main roles in this process. So us being quarantined together gives us an advantage that we're able to continue working in ways that other people are not. And, uh, it is, we have just, you know, over the past month, uh, continued to find solutions to, to various things. We have prop stylists who have enough of their own owned props that they're able to work in collaboration with us and kind of be virtually on set dropping things off. And of course it, it puts a lot more of the actual execution roles on Drew and I, but we're, we're making it work and we're finding clients that are being really incredible and willing to work with, you know, a smaller shot count because they know that it's just the two of us and, and, bouncing between zoom and texting photos and, um, and things like that. So how are you using zoom? If I may ask. Yeah. So interesting. You say we have used Zoom a couple of different ways. I recently just did a shoot for a food publication where the food editor had to be in the images. So the equipment was sent to the food editor I was sharing his computer remotely through Zoom because they have a feature where you can physically be operating someone else's computer the same way you would if you were sharing IP addresses. And I was running Capture One. So I was physically operating the camera remotely while telling him how to move everything around. And this is someone who's, you know, never used Capture One, never had a setup like this before. So we went, it was like... I took all day to get two shots, but, um, it worked and actually surprisingly well, it takes a lot of communication, but we got through it. <laughs> it took me back many decades. I remember one time we thought it was amazing. I, I had a client, I was in New York and we had a client in Chicago and we thought it was a big deal that we were able to fax 
a four by five Polaroid to Chicago, have them make comments, <laughs> send it back, and they make corrections hundreds of wow. miles from each other. So I'm listening wow. to this and I'm just kind of laughing inside. We've come a long way. <laughs> I really have. My goodness. <laughs> it's a good thing too. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. It's just so cool that we're able to be working on set and, and take a photo and it, you can use Zoom literally to share. I can share my screen that has capture on it. I'm not as comfortable doing that with clients because it, you know, there's, there's so much in between tweaking that you're doing that I wouldn't want them to start commenting on something before I was ready. And so we haven't really used the feature for that much, just more like, okay, here's the image. I'm, I'm, you know, exporting it to a Dropbox folder. I'm texting them that folder. And then I'm texting them being like new images in there for you guys to look at. And then we're keeping going and things like that. Hmm. And most of the work, you're not using studios at this point. You're still working out of home. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. And have you found things or creative, uh, uh, how do I say solutions to, to problems that you never thought you'd have before? Has it been, uh, <laughs> interesting in that way? Has it been, you know, kind of fun to, to figure out what you can do at home? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely been every day presented a new challenge. Uh, last week we had a shoot where I had to play hand model <laughs> as well as shooting. Uh, so, that's something I've never done before. First of all, I don't think I have very photogenic hands. So I was very surprised. That's something that we haven't talked about, but like hands are so important in some of these food images because you're illustrating a a process or you're holding something to give it context, things like that. So hand models are pretty big in our world. And um, you find out quickly who on set has the best hands. Usually if there isn't budget for a hand model. Um, and yeah, I, I had to do both. And so I was instructing, I, it was, a, I was holding something up with my wrist twisted. And so I'm telling Drew how to focus and, and, you know, just, that was a, yeah, that was a disaster in itself. I <laughs> was having a lot of struggles finding focus and, we had to pause and I had to learn how to change the, I don't know, what do you call it, Chelsea? The focus square? That's what a non-photographer would call it. <laughs> Sounds pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't you just put some latex gloves on and, and be done with all of that, you know? That's the, the <laughs> day, you know? What is the time frame generally for when, you know, you're shooting something to when you expect it to be published? I mean, there, there's usually uh, a good deal of time ahead, right? Yes. Yeah. It's a couple of weeks out for most things. Oh, okay. All right. And uh, you were talking earlier about um, recipes and I'm kind of curious about that aspect of it because when you have to put like a narrative together of, of you know, how something is made and you're showing the ingredients and the steps, uh, is that th- something that you'll determine or are those shots kind of laid out for you ahead of time? Those uh, shots will, yeah. If we're being asked to, to shoot a, a recipe, normally we're told if they want a final product or if they want shots of ingredients or process shots along the way, I'd say generally with publications, it's having one either plated or um, plated shot of the dish or one shot of the whole entire, um, all eight servings together, just as if you had just completed the meal Sometimes they'll, stories will ask for process shots and we've 
had a couple times where you know we'll have something and shoot it halfway through it's done depending on the what's being asked yeah, yeah. and chelsea what you were mentioning the strobes what, what kind of strobes do you use uh right now i have the b10 plus mm-hmm. set up from Prophoto. okay and um yeah it is incredible they they're great they're small they are the latest version that can also trickle power which is a crucial thing for me because their previous models were you know they had location kits and you could easily um you know set them up anywhere but the battery pack just to be able to rely on that is is really difficult so with these latest ones i'm able to you know hook them up to the wall and you keep using them all day long but also they're super versatile and and small <laughs> and would will you take those with you when you go to studio or when you're at a studio it's what they have yeah usually when i'm in a studio i'm using the power packs um and having you know a, a bit more of an elaborate setup just because uh i get a bit more control and the, the power is just is easier to control and and things like that so this is definitely my pseudo location kit but i've been super impressed with these lights. I actually just got them like a couple months before this all happened. So, um, I'm really glad with how, how well it's been working out. We hear so much, uh, about, you know, all the other related products that something you would never want to eat that are used or substituted for food in these photography. And, uh, you know, I get a sense that's kind of a thing of the past to some degree, but can you speak about that? Maybe any any oddball things that you do use still that that mimics food, or or why we're not using you know these products as much any longer? Yeah, that that's a big misconception. You know, along with um, I'd say that when telling someone that I'm a food stylist, the two big questions are: Oh, are you actually making the food and is the food edible? Is it fake or not? Across the board, nowadays, all the food is edible. Uh, I know Chelsea mentioned earlier, sometimes food looks better when it's overcooked or undercooked. So it's not always going to taste the best, but um, generally the food is is all edible. One big example, I guess going going back Part of the reason why the food is all edible now is especially for advertising campaigns. If you're selling ice cream, it is illegal to use fake ice cream. Um, and now to false advertising, if you're not using the actual product for what is being shot and, and being advertised. So if, for example, you are advertising a pie it's a pie company and they want ice cream on top and they're not selling ice cream you can use fake ice cream there and i generally say ice cream is what is faked the most nowadays now that as long as it's not an ice cream brand of course but um a lot of stylists have different techniques and mixtures of how they prefer to make fake ice cream but i'd say that that's the biggest example that jumps out to me of what food is actually faked. Hmm. And what about items that are like dripped and sauces and things like that? Are they tend to be either the, you know, the real thing or the real thing with something added to it to give it a different viscosity or texture? Yeah, exactly. Most 
times it's, you know, it's the real thing, but there are different tricks to thicken food, to thin it out, to make it still the same color and read the same on camera, but that are, is going to be able to be manipulated in different ways. Um, and also it's, it's doing a lot of attempts. Um, we've had, Chelsea and I have had conversations where we're like, we're going to have to do this a couple times or a bunch of times to get that drip or we're going to have to replate this and definitely had happy accidents sometimes where we get it on the first or second try, but still want to try it more just in case to see what happens. Um, and sometimes the food just isn't cooperating and you've got to do it 10, 20 different times to get that perfect trip that you're looking for. That's pretty common then that, that many takes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Depending on the job and you know, what is actually being looked for. But if, Mm -hmm. if you're wanting that perfect drip, it's going to take a lot of tries. And what about like color accuracy? I mean, are, are clients really strict when they say, Hey, that, that, you know, we need this to look this kind of red or, or, or green if it's some kind of leafy thing. Yes, absolutely. I think that that's a big thing um, that I'm editing or doing in camera, obviously in camera as much as you possibly can. Uh, but there are a lot of, that's a lot of co- like a frequent co- question or, or comment I will get from uh, the back end because I'm, I do handle almost 99% of my retouching I do myself. So I, I get a lot of asks for, can we make this greener? Can we do that? Uh, sometimes if, if for example, like a meat has been on set for a while, as you know, like steaks, um, the color changes over time. We might've gotten the shot perfect. And then we had to make more adjustments on set and things, you know, it, it would be, a huge time constraint to have to redo something. So if I can uh, bring it back or, you know, even like combine a previous shot, cause most of the time I'm shooting on tripod. So if I can combine a shot that was like seven shots ago with the one that's current, or if I can edit that in post, I will, will do that for them. Yeah. And that's a lot of communication between food stylist and photographer and saying, if we got it, if the food looked its best seven shots ago, can we, can that be comped in or does that need to be remade for this one specific part? If, if an adjustment was made where the food needs to be reset. And Drew, would you, are you, let's say it's a, a steak shoot. How many, you know, versions of that steak will you have ready just in case? I mean, do you always have backups of everything? Yeah. Always backups of everything. Yeah. I would, as a general rule with savory dishes, two to three if it's a cake or any type of dessert i'm making it the day before and possibly having more prep days to make even more and then making extra um, on the set day you know starting a cake in the morning and talking to the photographer about having that shot later in the day so that i have a, a couple options to show the client and to and enough room that if it does need to be remade and if it's a recipe that takes a long time that I've got it along far enough that it's not going to take up too much time to totally remake it. And I imagine there are situations where you have to redo one element of it, but it also requires redoing others because the other ones now no longer will match or, or work or just be too old. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah, you said it perfectly. Sometimes one 
part of the food is dependent on another part. And if one part needs to be redone, the whole thing gets scrapped and need to start over. And Chelsea, for the, the post-process work you, is that something that you just, uh, is that, are you kind of unique in that sense that you're doing your own post-work or, and, and do you bill for that the same way or is it just all kind of part of the process? Uh, it's, it's, that's a debated question. Um, I have found that it is rather unique that I do all of my own retouching. Uh, I know that there are photographers who prefer to, to outsource that and, and to have that, especially when there's, I wouldn't say they would prefer to outsource the visual touches that they're doing for aesthetic, uh, that relates personally to their brand and their visual look and things like that. But it's the stuff that's like, we know we have to silo this out and we have to clean this image up. And there's a bajillion tiny little adjustments that you know, someone who, who is a retoucher can do faster or more efficiently or cheaper. Um, I would say that I have so few jobs that have a mass quantity of images that, that one final image is, you know, has minimal cleanup and more of like adjustments that are being made for my visual preference. Uh, and that's why I really enjoy retouching just because I'm able to, you know, I, I always feel that when I'm on set and I have that final shot, it almost feels like, you know, to be not to be funny, but like a half baked cake, like it's not done yet. And I know it's not done for my liking. So that, really is a, is for me is a whole nother part of the process that I really enjoy. I think other photographers don't feel as attached to the, the post-production aspect. I know a lot of people will do like what they call treatment. So they'll say they'll edit one of like a series of 20 to their liking. And then a retoucher will replicate that with other work. Gotcha. Gotcha. So uh, can you possibly maybe look into the future a little bit to, to envision um, how food photography is going to be changing in, in the next several months to a year. And let's just kind of use that time frame in general, because that, that's what they're talking about before, you know, we may get back to a normal, um, and, and even some of the positives that may come out of the, this, you know, have you thought about that much and how, you know, a food photography shoot's going to look in, uh, in three months from now? It seems like there's going to be a big, demand for everyone wearing masks on set for smaller crews for you know from the food side possible more um, flexibility with products that just aren't able to be sourced as easily whether that means or whether that's because different bakeries or um, aren't running or have gone out of business or have been affected by this um, there's not as easy of an ability to order things online or get that to you overnight or in the next couple of days as it was. So I think shoots are going to have to be planned a lot more in advance and have a lot more communication. Um, things like possibly propping sets beforehand and having the angles determined already so that sets can be instead of just sketched out there, there can actually be a blueprint more so. So I, th I think the planning is going to need to go up and that shoots that maybe could be planned within a week before are going to take, you know, a couple weeks longer 
to get off the ground. Yeah, I think there's there's just a general worry um, about how to safely go back to a system that wasn't really prescribed before, per se, where I think there are a lot of jobs out there that, you know, you can eliminate where you can work or you can separate desks to be further apart. You can do measures that will allow things to operate as normal where photo shoots are just, and the same with the film world. It's just, it's really hard to, to not be interacting with your, with everyone on set, with all of the products, things like that. So that that's going to be the biggest challenge. And I definitely, I think for the sake of, what you know the same thing that drew was saying is like the the smaller shoots or smaller crews like less ambitious shot lists for one day shoot the the problem becomes like you know how do you how do you convince clients that they're going to need to pay more and they're going to get less because that's hard and that's what we have to do in order to operate how we were before so the the question will and what what businesses are going to be affected by this and won't have as much budget and how can we all be smart to to be working in smaller crews but also not jeopardize the industry because you know of course the, the drew, that drew and I are working on our own like we're we're taking precautionary measures when when estimating things and putting together these shoots so that we know that when things go back to normal it's not going to be crazy that I ask for an assistant again or that Drew has an assistant like because we can do something with a smaller crew doesn't mean that it's efficient for them and that they won't get more if we had more resources and and could go back to the way we were and then there's this like internal struggle that I've been both Drew and I have been talking about a lot is just that you want to be able to to give to these clients and and to say like yes we're still working and we're still capable and we're doing this but you also don't want to put yourself in a position or the industry in a position where we can't go back to being properly not properly treated but you get what i'm saying and coming back to normal so that's that's really what it comes down to i know a lot of people have been talking about like groups that they're going to be like almost like quarantining with and i think that i i'm wondering if that will happen more is that like smaller crews that are super familiar with each other and work together a lot and trust each other will more or less like solely work with each other and i wonder if that's going to create this kind of like different pods of of artists and stylists together um but yeah we're we're constantly looking for you know, whatever professional is doing another webinar or something that kind of can give us insight onto how how people are going to be operating again, because it feels like every day there's new news. Hmm. And Drew, you said you'd heard some things from some studios or from clients with their thoughts on the future. Is that anything you can share? Yeah, we, I can't, you know, between Instagram and um, talking to other people in the industry about their plans. Obviously, the biggest you know, priority is making sure that everyone's safe. And people have talked about how that can be done, if waivers are going to need to be signed. And Chelsea and I have talked about how the, even that is so up in the air. And if someone were to contract corona and they could trace it back to being on set with someone else, that that's probably going to be a lawsuit in itself. So 
it's just there's These no universal things though this is not really specific to the industry this is universal yeah not to take away or to negate what you're saying but this is something that i think everybody in every industry is grappling with right now because again nothing that was will be it's absolutely yeah no that's not taking away from what i was saying at all i, I totally agree with that this is by far not the only every industry is affected by this and the the uncertainty reaches far beyond the food styling and photo world and um to say that is you know downplaying so much that's not the case at all um it just you know we've talked about a lot but it doesn't seem like there is going to be any perfect way to move forward and you know when when Chelsea and I have been working together in this we've talked about how our months ago our role was photographer and food stylist and now we are jumping between photographer and prop stylist and prop assistant and food style assistant and you know throughout the day i have this thought in my mind of like okay now i'm being the food stylist now i'm being the photo assistant now i'm being the prop assistant and it's jumping around where like that's extending the shoot day and that's ultimately lowering the amount of shots that we're able to do. You had asked if there were any positives that are coming Mm -hmm. out of this. I do see a lot of that. And the fact that I think people are being more open with each other. I'm seeing a lot of people communicating, uh, you know, how can we make this work? How can we, you know, band together and, and share resources and, you know, we literally have like one of our cooking pots attached to a long string. And one of my friends drove by and like dropped something off that I needed. And like, we pull it up like a pulley system to the window. And like, it's just, there's, there's a lot of like banding together that's happening. And of course, New York is just as like the perfect community for that. Cause everybody just gets tougher when things get hard. But, um, it's also, I think there's a lot being changed about how people are what they're looking for in visuals and how the the rawness of all of this has kind of driven people to further dislike things that are artificial and and not real and like people want to see reality more than they did before and i think that's you know that's been happening before this whole happen this thing happened but it it just seems like it's getting even more enunciated where it's like nobody has time for stuff that's not real (laughs) and people are cooking a lot more which i think is is great maybe that's improving the demand for new recipes and um generally it's just having people make new things that they probably wouldn't have made before i mean i've made different things that have taken a couple hours when I would only have time to do that on a weekend. And now I have days where I can spend on making dishes that I've been wanting to make for months and haven't gotten around to it. So I can vouch for that. My wife and I are trying a lot of recipes (laughs) and things that we've never done before. And uh, usually with good results. Okay, uh, Chelsea and Drew, thank you so, so much for joining us today. Chelsea, if people would like to see more of your work, uh, websites, Instagram, where should they go to? Yeah, uh, my website is... ChelseaKyle.com, very simple. And my Instagram is Chelsea Louise Kyle. Ah, okay. All right. And Drew, what about yourself? My website is 
drew.eichley.com and my Instagram is drew drew Eichley. You might need to spell that. <laughs> yeah, I need to spell that. It's uh, Drew D R E W, and last name is A I C H E L E. And that will be on uh, uh, our uh, homepage as well in the podcast group page. So uh, if you missed it on this, it, it's definitely going to be there in the show notes as well. Uh, thank you both for joining us and uh, hang in there and keep persevering like the rest of us. Okay, folks, before we say toodles, we just want to let you in on something special. Ready for this? The B&H Photography Podcast is going to be conducting a new photography contest. And you know what the prize is? Return your seats to their upright positions and fold your snack trays, folks, because we don't want you to mess yourself when we tell you that the prize is going to be a Leica Q2. We're talking about 47 megapixels worth of kick-ass camera from one of photography's most legendary camera manufacturers, Leica. I shot with the Q2, and I can tell you it's an amazing imaging tool. For now, keep listening to the podcast and check the B&H website for the exact launch date and the rules for entry. For the record, this is going to be a judge photo contest based on images taken during the quarantine shutdown. The entry period will start in late May, so stay tuned and stay creative. For now, my name is Alan Weitz, and on behalf of John Harris and Jason Tables, thank you so much for tuning in today. <laughs>